Let's uh, turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Romans. Romans, uh, as we're ending our series on the celebration of the resurrection, looking at the future implications of the resurrection for our lives today, Romans is that book that ties in, uh, probably ties Ephesians as that book of the Bible that has the most soaring views of God, and coincidentally, they're both written by Paul. Paul has a satiated view and a hunger and a thirst for God, and it just seems like the appropriate lens for us to look at the resurrection, what it means, not just in the past, not just what it says about Jesus, not just what it implies for our present day situation, but what it means for our future. So we're going to read Romans, turn to chapter 8, verse 18 through 25. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 25. Give you a second to turn there. Paul says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children." For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved. Yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, as you've said before, you've spoken through the prophets in different times and in different places, but in these last days you have spoken to us through your Son. And so we ask together collectively that as we center ourselves around your word, that which was spoken by the prophets and the apostles, that we would be by them pointed in all of our affections, in all of our insight, in all of our understanding, in all of our emotion, in all of our intellect, we would be pointed by our very will to the one Jesus Christ. Thank you that you rose from the dead. You put your glory on display, making a bold statement to all of the earth that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we gather around you today, Christ, to worship and exalt you. We pray that as we do that, you would teach us how to enjoy you more and look forward to the day of our blessed hope when you will come again to glorify all that is yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. What I, what I wanted mostly to address this morning is this, this thought that I often have personally, and perhaps some of you have 
especially in the month that we've been taking, to focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That some of us are celebrating and are gearing up to celebrate on Easter morning this event, this momentous event in which Jesus Christ rises from the dead in the midst of our lives in which for some of us we are perhaps a bit uneasy about death itself. So we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ when perhaps some of us are fearful of our own death. And maybe it's not of our own death, but maybe things leading up to that, the suffering in life that we go through, the difficulties in life, the hardship, the decay, the corruption. And are we to rejoice in Jesus' resurrection yet while helplessly tolerating our own suffering? In other words, we know that it is good news. We know that it's good news that Jesus rose from the dead. But what does it have to do with our future? What does it have to do with those loved ones who have died? What does it have to do with the fact that we still suffer? Does it mean anything for us now? Are we to just stand by and hopelessly tolerate the fact that we suffer and we eventually die? And of course, none of us do that anyway, right? It was an author by the name of Ernest uh, Becker who wrote a book speaking entirely about the subject. He he called his book Denial of Death. He ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize for it. And he writes in his book that everything that we do ends up being just a reflex of the terror of death. Everything we do, even if we don't don't know it intuitively, we, we end up doing everything. Our accomplishments, our heroic displays, everything that we strive for in this life, every athlete that we we admire, every pop star that we we adulate stems from what he calls this immortality formula. Which there is, as he says, this desire in all of humanity to stand out and to be a hero. Why? Well, he would end up saying in the rest of his writing is because we are trying in some way to deny our mortality. We're trying to prolong our lives. We are trying to deny the fact that death exists. And death, no matter how much we try to deny it, is disturbingly real. I don't know how you feel about it, but personally, it gets all the more real the more I suffer. It gets all the more real, the more difficult life gets. The sense in which all is not right with the world. And I will leave a Sunday morning singing loud anthemic songs, only to sail and cruise into Monday morning, hitting a wall. That wall that there are things that are desperately wrong with the world around me and even in my own life. And the comfort that we get from the scriptures is that the Bible is not, the Christian worldview is not ignorant to such things. It's not naive to the suffering in this world. The Christian worldview approaches it by explaining that all death and all decay and all evil and all suffering and all difficulty comes as a product of sin. That this was not God's intended design. It came in as a product of our sinful nature. Now, I'm not saying it came in because of our individual sins, right? I'm not saying because you ran that stoplight this morning that there is suffering and decay all around you. 
Not the individuals, the individual sins that we commit, but more the condition of sin that is innate in all of us. What the Bible would describe as the, the sickness of humanity, that we are inherently sinful. As a result of that, there is suffering, there is evil. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all men because all sinned. And so when we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, and then Paul goes on to say in Romans 8 verse 20, well, as a result of sin, the creation was subjected to futility. What he's saying is, as a result of sin, nothing works right. The intended design of God is not as it was intended. There is a discord, there is a disunity, there is a, there is a, a discombobulation, there is a separation. There is something inherently wrong with the things that we see and we are suffering right in the middle of it and that's why we have death and that's why we have decay and that's why we have heartache and that's why we are heartbroken. And all of this serves to show us two things. One, that God exists. I'd say, well, wait a minute. Don't you think that the presence of evil and the presence of suffering is actually an objection against God's existence? And a lot of people would say that. Well, why would a benevolent God allow evil and suffering? Why are there all of these things that we have to deal with if there is, in fact, a holy God who loves people? C.S. Lewis when he used to be an atheist, writes in one of his books that he used to wrestle with this tremendously. In Mere Christianity, he said, my argument was exactly that against God. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. So what was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Essentially, he was saying, before having an idea that there is something wrong with the world, one must have an intuition of what right is. Before we can actually identify what evil is, we have to have some idea of what good is. And Paul would say that that standard of good is called the law of God. He would say in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, when we, Gentiles, who do not have the law, instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Listen to this. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. In other words, so even, even to identify suffering as evil points to the fact that God exists because how would we be able to identify any type of suffering or any type of wrong or any type of evil unless we had a holy, righteous, moral, and very good standard outside of ourselves? So suffering shows us, even though it's very uncomfortable, that God exists. It also shows us that if God exists, that we desperately need his help. If God exists and he is as good as he says he is and there is hardship and decay and death and suffering, we as human beings who are sinful desperately need his help for the Bible declares that we ourselves are the problem. 
And as Paul is writing Romans chapter 8, you have to understand that what he's doing is he's writing this against the backdrop of suffering and futility and decay and death. And what he's doing right here is he's seeking to give us a sense of not just the the suffering that we face and the hardship that we face, but he's attempting to pull us to a a view of 30,000 feet, so to speak. He wants to give us a a bird's eye view of everything, not just the suffering that our our faces are, are nose deep in. He wants to pull us out to give us a a, a grand view of the entire story. Here's what I mean. Some time ago when my wife Brianna and I went to New York to run around the city, we discovered that the city is very big. And we found ourselves personally in love with a couple villages. Uh, I think it was East Village was my favorite because it was eclectic and scattered and crazy. Her favorite was Greenwich Village because it was nice and clean. And then in the middle of there, we, we started running around a, a, that little uh, area called Soho. But because we didn't know where we were going, I ended up getting lost. And so we would take the subway. We had that subway token, that little card. We just took the subway anywhere we wanted. I want to go to this coffee shop, take the subway, go to the coffee shop. Well, I want to go to this little bokeh shop in uh, Soho, so hop on the subway, go to that place. After a couple days, I still couldn't figure out anywhere that we were going. I got lost. I couldn't make sense of anything. We were wasting our time on the train the entire time until Brianna pulls out her iPhone and looks at the map. And we discovered that all of these three little places are right next to each other. In fact, we were able to walk through all three of them in a matter of minutes. But we had spent, or I had spent, the past two days hopping on the subway to bounce over two blocks into the next neighborhood. Something happened when we looked at the map and we all of a sudden weren't in the subway. We weren't in a neighborhood, but we saw everything as it related to one another. We stopped getting lost. We knew how everything played out. We knew the relation of each neighborhood to, uh, to one another. And this is exactly what Paul is attempting to do with suffering. All of us have our noses butted up against the difficulties of this life. Some of you have suffered more than any of us can imagine. And that's all we see in this life. And Paul wants us to give us a view of 30,000 feet to see not just our suffering, but what comes after our suffering. And he says that in verse 18. I consider, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And so Paul wants to give us a revelation of the glory to be revealed to us in the midst of the futility and the hardship and the suffering of this life. He does that essentially in the next few verses by saying, hey, I know that things are not as they should be right now. I know the economy isn't working as you would like it to. I know that you are suffering in your family relationships. I know that your loved one has died. I know that you cannot put enough food on the table. I know that you are struggling in this. I know that you are struggling in that. I know that things are not as they were intended to be, but all will be made right. All will 
be restored and renewed. And in the midst of you being in the middle of all of that stuff, I want you to keep in mind that this is not the end. He does that in a number of ways. One, he goes straight after death. Death and all of its annoying relatives that it brings with it. He says there will be a halt to death and everything that comes along with death. Suffering, decay, broken relationships, hardship, difficulties. There will be a time where Christ comes and he puts an end to all of it. You remember last week we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Speaking about the resurrection. Well, Paul goes on in the rest of that chapter to speak about the resurrection, saying in verse 24 through 26, there will come an end when Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, and he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Listen to this line. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Meaning that Jesus Christ is already on a mission putting everything under his feet. And the last thing that he will put under his feet is death. And everything to go with it. All of its annoying, irritating relatives. What this is going to look like, John the Apostle tells us in Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. He's going to put an end to all of that. Now, maybe for some of you, this doesn't sound as good as you would like it to because you've already experienced death. Okay, I know that God is going to put an end to death, but I have already experienced death in my family. I know God is going to put an end to grief and suffering, but I have already experienced grief and suffering. What about all that I have already experienced, that baggage, that stuff that I carry with me? I'm I'm overjoyed that he's going to do something about it soon in the future, but what about all of the stuff that I'm carrying with me? The scriptures seem to say, That he's not just going to put an end to its effects, but he's going to put an end. Or uh, he's not going to put an end to it in the future, but he's going to put an end to it, its very effects in our lives. We can call it not just a halt to all of those things, but a sheer reversal. Everything. I don't even know how it's going to work, but the Bible seems to declare that everything, even in the past, every evil, every bad intent, every piece of malice, every death, every suffering, everything that you can put a name on that is evil, he is somehow going to work in reverse for his glory. Yeah, amen. That there is, as Paul describes, this futility, an entropy, if you want to call it that. A gradual decline, a lack of order. He's going to reorder it. Work it in reverse. Some of you know this passage. You love this passage. A few verses later, Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. That means God is going to somehow even work the evil the wrong, the bad. Now, he's not the author of evil, right? Satan is the author of evil. But God can so use and 
change what God meant for evil for your good. And the Bible promises that he's going to do that. We might not even see the effects of it in this life, but he promises to do that. Every bad thing that happens in this life, even in the past, he will somehow change and work out for your ultimate good. Even the bad things that happened are somehow transformed. This happens on an individual spiritual level. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Our identities, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. It doesn't just happen with our identities. It happens with our very will and disposition. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And what Paul was so emphatic about in 1 Corinthians 15, it doesn't just happen to your spirit, it doesn't just happen to your soul, it actually happens to your physical bodies. In in fact, Paul would say, if the resurrection doesn't affect the physical body, we are, of all people, most to be pitied because Jesus rose physically from the dead. And if he rose physically from the dead, he will raise you physically from the dead. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 through 54, we will not all fall asleep. This is Hebrew metaphor for death, but we will all be changed in a moment, in a blink of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility. This mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then he goes on to say, almost with fervor, almost with with condescension towards death, where death is your sting now? Try to bite me now. I know it's going to happen to my body. Not only does it happen with those who are God's people, but it will happen to the entire cosmos. Everything that you see and walk on and taste, everything that you read, everything that you touch, everything that you smell, everything created by God will be redeemed in physical form. Prophet Isaiah in chapter 65 or 17 would say, Uh, As God would speak through him, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Everything will be transformed. He's not just going to bring a halt to death. He's going to transform everything that death has touched. And most importantly, the way that Paul says all things will be made right is not just in the renewal of all things, but in the full revelation of of one thing, one person, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Everything good flows back to us as children of God, seeing him. Have you ever wondered, while some of us are strangely afraid of death, Paul seemed to long for death. He said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, my desire is to depart with Christ, for that is far better. But, you know, I'll stay because you need me. I guess I'll live a little bit longer because you need me. But man, I would love to just be with Jesus. Why, Paul? 
The Apostle John would put it this way. He'd say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. What Paul and John understood is that there is something that trumps every experience in this earthly life, and it's wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. That it is so good and so transcendent of any earthly thing that it is better to be with him than to be here. And yet the reason that we're here is because other people don't know him. And so he, he leaves us here so that others might repent upon meeting us and upon being witnessed to by us. And so we're here. And Paul, and Paul of all people says, I guess I'll stay because you need me and, and the gospel needs to go out. But man, I just want to see the face of Christ. And John actually implies that it's by seeing Christ that we're transformed by that seeing. That with resurrected bodies, do you understand that when we are glorified physically, we will be able to see Jesus as we never would be able to see him now. We can right now say with the psalmist, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but you've only had a little taste. Those of you that are euphorically in love with the Lord and your Savior Jesus Christ, you've only had a finite taste you can't take all in that which is Jesus Christ he's too much and yet the Bible seems to suggest that when we have resurrected bodies we will be free from the blinding effects of our sin nature so that we can behold and gaze into the beauty of Jesus Christ and in that instance we will be transformed Paul knew that is everything that a human being longs for. In this life, we might chase after every single idol that there is looking for that thing that we long for, but it's the face of Christ. It's the glory of God in the face of Christ that all of humanity desires, and that is what we have in store for us, and it will blow away our earthly suffering like we can't even imagine in this life. And so Paul knows that. He knows that life here is not all that there is, and it changed the way that he suffered. And the reason that he's writing Romans chapter 8 is that it might change the way that we suffer. That we might, with a 30,000 foot bird's eye view of the whole plan of God, be able to change in the way that we suffer. Now, I'm not saying that he's calling us to be happy, clappy, fake Christians that are just just smiling even though life is hard or to ignore the fact that there's suffering or to pretend like we're not suffering or to pretend like we're doing okay when we're not doing okay. And this is exactly what he says in Romans chapter eight when he says that Christians groan and all of creation groans. What he means right there is that we have this sense inside of us that things are, are not intended to be as they are. They will get better, but this is not how it's supposed to be. And we groan because we want it to be redeemed. And yet what's different about Christians is that we are called to groan in the tension, but to groan in hope. Not a fake happiness not an ignorance of all that's going on, not closing ourselves to the world, not a fake happiness, but a transcendent joy. It's that sense inside, it's that peace and well-being that comes only from God and that transcends even all that you and I go through. 
Christians groan in hope, eagerly waiting for adoption, as Paul says, the redemption of our bodies, knowing that no matter how bad it gets here, we can look forward to what will come. There was a gal by the name of Frances Jane Crosby, uh, probably better known as Fanny Crosby to some of you. She was born in 1820. As a baby, she had a a severe eye infection in which an incompetent doctor attempted to treat by uh, placing these hot poultices on her inflamed eyelids. The infection ended up clearing up, but the result of but the result of this was, was that scars began to form over her eyes, and as a young infant girl, uh, a young toddler, Fanny became blind for the rest of her life. Months after that incident, her dad became ill and died, and this was the introduction to her best life now. Her introduction to the life that she knew was one of immense, desperate, Suffering, and yet the testimony of her life, some of you know, she went on to write thousands of hymns of praise to God. Because she seemed to have a joy that was found in Christ that was so unshakable that not even blindness could stop her from enjoying the Lord. There was something about what she knew about Jesus that transcended her sufferings. I would even argue from the testimony of her life that her suffering seemed to magnify her enjoyment of God. It was once told that someone came up to Fanny in her older, uh, older years and asked her, if you could get your sight back, would you, would you take it? And she replied, no. The person re- uh, responded, why on earth not? And she said, because... When I die, the first face that I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. Perhaps as some of you are, are hearing this, might be able to say, yeah, okay, Chris, there's stories of redemption sprinkled throughout history. Great. I don't feel that same thing Fanny feels. To be honest, maybe for some of you, I'm not just sad, I am bitter. I don't care what God is going to do thousands of years from now or whenever it is. I don't care how it's all going to work out. I am suffering right now. I am at the end of my rope and I don't care what's going to happen. I am suffering and God's not doing anything about it right now. And just because he's going to do something about it sometime in the sweet by and by does not take him off the hook right now. To you, my brother and sister, I want to say you're right. And God never took himself off the hook to begin with. He put himself on the hook of human suffering by suffering with us. By sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in place of everything that you and I deserved The prophet Isaiah would speak about this vividly, speaking about the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, saying, surely he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. But we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was bruised for our iniquities, he was crushed for our transgressions. 
The chastisement that we needed in order to find peace was put upon Jesus Christ, and by his stripes we have been made healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each one to, to our own way, but God has caused the iniquity and the sin of us all to fall upon his Son. And Jesus Christ puts on flesh, becomes a human in a poor neighborhood, does everything that we do, lives the life that we lived, suffers tremendously that he might bring people to God. And he is able to say in the book of Hebrews, with authenticity and realness, I know what you're going through and I am now doing something about it. And the cross of Jesus Christ should show us two things. They should show us that God loves you desperately. He loves you so much that he chose to step into your suffering instead of eradicating everything and starting from scratch. It shows us that nothing in this life is wasted, not even your suffering, for even in the suffering of Jesus Christ, God redeems it by bringing him to life, and his promise is that he will bring you to life, and he will restore everything that Satan has ruined. I want you to think deeply about that. That means our, our siblings that have passed away, they'll be raised to new life. You'll walk with them again. Those who have put their faith, trust in Christ, you'll see them again. Our parents, our grandparents who have passed, we'll see them again. Our aunts, our uncles, our close friends, merely by, by putting their faith in Christ, they will be resurrected to new life. There will come a time where we will walk the streets with them again because the streets themselves will be renewed. Babies. Some of you have miscarried and you're heartbroken. God will bring them to new life. Some of you have had abortions. And you ask yourself daily, what will happen? What have I done? God will bring your child to life. God will take everything that Satan has meant for evil and he will restore it for his own glory. And that's why Paul says, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that we're going to get a hold of. One of my favorite creeds is the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you are familiar with the Westminster Catechism because we, we quote that first one all the time. Question one, what is the chief end of, of man? It's to, enjoy G, uh, it's to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. I love the Heidelberg Catechism because it's very similar to Westminster, which is glorious and confrontational and big. But Heidelberg has this personal aspect, and it's very pastoral and comforting in nature. I just want to compare the, the two questions. Westminster asks, what is the chief end of man? Heidelberg asks, what is the only comfort in life and death? 
what is our only comfort in life and death? Let me give you the answer that comes from the whole of Scripture. And as I read these, I just begin to put yourself in this pronoun. Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yeah, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Meaning that part of the comfort of the resurrection is that we understand that death is not the last chapter. It's more of a prologue. You know, I'm a, I'm 32 years old. And I have, I've gone through like difficulties but I have not yet suffered like some of you have suffered. And a great majority of us in this church are too young to really know what real suffering is like. Some of us have gotten a traffic ticket or our food wasn't cooked the way it was supposed to be. We, we call out suffering. And God is so merciful and that he, he still comforts us even when we, we get a traffic t- ticket, but, but there are people in this room that, and, and in this church who have, who have suffered. And whenever I talk about suffering from the podium, I always risk sounding or coming across either condescending or insensitive or maybe patronizing because I am, at the end of the day, 32-year-old punk, who has not gone through hardship and is telling some of you who have lost everything, it's going to be okay. Jesus will fix everything. And I want you to know that I understand that and that there's nothing that I can do to change that. Which is why, as you read through Romans chapter 8, Paul continuously refers to the Holy Spirit. Nineteen times in Romans chapter 8, he refers to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there comes a point in time where we are in such despair that we need the power of God to reveal to us a supernatural, very close nearness and comfort when we feel it in no other place. When we're like David in a dark night of the soul crying out, God, your nearness is my good. I need your nearness. And so all of these things are true, but at the end of the day, we need a deep sense of God's presence to make it avail much. The way that the Holy Spirit comforts us is he, by his great and mighty power, begins to unite us to Christ's death and resurrection. He gives us a real sense that these things are true and that it strengthens you through those moments when you are too weak to go through it yourself. In a sense, the Holy Spirit helps us to enjoy Jesus even when we find it impossible to do so. 
We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our church. I'm going to pray that that would be the case. That we wouldn't simply be people who are broken in depression and in the circumstances in life, nor those people who try to ignore suffering by smiling all the time. But people who are able to enjoy God for all that he is, strengthened by all that he is, no matter what Satan brings and no matter how the world organizes itself around us. But before I do, I want to end by reading a hymn by Fanny Crosby. Three verses. And this is what I'm going to end up praying for all of us. But as I do, I want you to remember that she was blind. Fanny Crosby writes, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy and whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching, waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. That is not an immortality formula. That is the real presence of a resurrected Lord wrapping his arms around a broken woman. Are you broken today? same Christ who's risen from the dead is now available to all who place their faith and trust in him. Place your faith and trust in him now. Fall on your faces and run to him for he longs for you. He knows what you're going through. He's suffering with you and he will put an end to all of this and in the meantime, he will show you his very good presence. Jesus David said, your nearness is our good. And Reality Church, this congregation comes to you this morning to openly declare in unison that this is something that we know by experience. Your nearness is our good. It's been our good for a long time, for 10 years, and it will be our good for the next 10. And God, I want to pray specifically for those in this body who are suffering, who are confused, who are empty, who are besides themselves, who don't even know how to wake up tomorrow morning, that Christ, you would manifest your very real presence 
in such a tangible way that they would be able to say, as Job said, when he lost everything, you know, I, I heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. We want our spiritual eyes to see you. So Christ, comfort us where we are broken, when we are hurting. And also, Lord, for the rest of us who have not suffered, who are not having a hard time, who are actually pretty happy this morning, I pray that you would turn our happiness into joy. That your joy would come in the morning, that your joy would be our strength, that your joy would push us out into the week, that we would be filled and satiated by joy, not by mere happiness based in circumstances, but in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and comes for his very own. We love you, Lord. Teach us what the saints of old would declare that we too might be able to be lost in your love. Pour the love of the Father abroad into our hearts that we might be lost in your love. We pray these things in your name.